Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this. It is the latest installment of our podcast, Pilot Episodes. As always, I am joined by our three musketeers. Mm, musketeers, is that the right word? Well, we'll go with it. First of all, I'll start with the man obsessed by detail, Skullcrusher. How are we, Dunk? Hey, JB. I'm good, thanks, mate. Tell me, what have you been up to for the last couple of weeks? Oh, do you know I've lost all track of time? You always do this. I know, I know. I've been. I just came back. I've been uh, sailing. Actually, I've been doing some very adventurous training in Scotland. So uh, I've uh, just come back from that today. Is that work or pleasure? Oh, it's definitely work. Is it really? You've been oh, sailing. That is the lie. Yeah, sailing. It's extremely adventurous. So what it does is it keeps us on our toes to make sure we're primed and ready for action at all times. You know, a- anyone right. anyone saying that the RAF is some sort of some sort of boys club completely wrong, aren't they? Completely wrong. Abs- absolutely wrong. Uh, so now tell them the truth. Why do we do that? It's team building, isn't it? And just trying stuff you've never done before. Yeah, it's for me. I've been 30 years in the Air Force. I still have to go on team building exercises. <laughs> Will you try and work as a team? No. We're going to make him. <laughs> yeah. There's no iron dunk. So, yeah, I've been doing that. I've been doing a bit of uh, Takano flying again. And, um, uh, and and sadly, I've not been uh, I've not been doing as much as I would like. I've done some Hawk stuff, but um, uh, but I've been mostly doing miserable desk work. Oh, boring. Uh, well, actually, no, I say boring. I've been selling pensions for the last two weeks, so it's definitely more interesting than what I've been doing. I doubt it. Yeah, I think it's probably a, yeah, it's a, close, it's a close run thing. Well, talking of, well, monotony, um, <laughs> <laughs> Big Tone, you, you have done something like 60-odd 60 60 flights in Spitfires, back-to-back or something ridiculous. Uh, that was May. I've just done another 13 today and yesterday. And now, I think I've got seven tomorrow. Now, obviously, so another, another twenty in three days. So now, you know, for most people He's flying, get us... it right one day. <laughs> <laughs> one day you'll master it. So for most, for most people, flying a Spitfire is a dream, a dream come true. Are you bored of it yet? Negative, sir. No, it's utterly brilliant. We're, today we had. Uh, it's obviously D Day today. The it is. So uh, we had a, a D-Day Dakota uh, head corner. We were formating on that. And uh, it was too spitfast today. We were doing just formation stuff as uh, sort of uh, formation uh, packs or passenger flights. So, yeah, it was uh, it was wonderful. And the same again tomorrow. So it's great. So I'll just on the other one, Parky. Charlie Brown, the legend okay. moustache, Charlie Brown. Uh, uh, so are your, are, your, are your spits all in their D-Day stripes? No, these two are not. They're just in sort of standard Mark 9. You know. Should have got some whitewash out, a bit of black yeah. paint. 
get a broom, put some stripes on. What are you playing at? That's what yeah, they did 74 the years ago. It's a lack of attention to detail, that is, Parky. Well, that was right. your intro, Mason. It doesn't surprise me, to be honest. <laughs> uh, yeah, so all over the internet today has been rather cool pictures of modern aircraft with D-Day stripes on. And I, I always quite like that, in the same way that I quite like the typhoon dressed up as a Spitfire. That's also quite cool. Flying yeah. that one. Ha- have you? Was that yeah. you? No. Well, they, they dressed it up, and I thought that was a cool-looking aeroplane, actually. Did you fly, Parky? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, no. Just an assumption that you've flown everything all of the time. <laughs> no, but there was a. Do you remember in? I guess it was 2014. There was a. Yeah, four years ago, it was the D Day strike. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. That uh, Noel, Noel definitely was the display boy on that because he yeah. displayed that year. Uh, well, I flew it with. Um, I flew it to open up the 70th anniversary of uh, of D Days. I flew with in our Mark V that was, which was um, uh, painted as a D Day aircraft. Uh, of course, fly? that was um, that, that was beaches? yeah over Pegasus Bridge. Yeah, was the first did, one. Uh, did you have a life uh, that was the Mark Nine? <laughs> <laughs> it was the Mark did Nine. Did you wear a life right, jacket yeah, over the channel? Definitely not the Mark V. Not the Mark V. We did have the Mark V with D-Day stripes, but yeah, we did have it for then, didn't we? Uh, we had the 16 and the 9 with D-Day stripes. Hold your D-Day thoughts for two minutes, because I'm just going to move this on slightly. So with drawing a stark contrast, I'm going to talk to Godders, who I, I'm guessing this is quite a big day for you, mate. Uh, well, I made it home on the train commute alive, um, even though two blokes were kicking off on a fight. Oh, really? Um, so, you know, that's always a good thing. Um, no, it is, because as of, um, I think about 22 minutes ago, uh, as uh, as we look at the watches now, um, four UK F-35s um, landed at Royal Air Force Marham. That's absolutely incredible. So we, we finally have an F-35 on UK soil. It's not the first time they've been here, though, is it? They've had US ones over before. Yeah, they came over a couple of years ago. Um for Farnborough and Riyadh, the uh, the air shows, Farnborough International Air Show and uh, Riyadh International Air Show. Um, and actually, at that last time, uh, I was the person who intercepted them in a typhoon. Really? Uh, I had, uh, yeah, I was flying one typhoon. We had a Navy guy in another typhoon and uh, pulled up alongside, had a good look, um, uh. and then uh, left by pointing straight upwards and plugging the burners in, which they very much enjoyed. Ah, uh, nice. Um, now, tell me if I'm wrong. It's taken them eight hours to fly here. Is that... Yeah. Is that correct? Now, I, yeah. I always assume when you get into a fast jet, you get to Mark 2 and you stay there. But that that's not how they arrived, is it? It's actually far more mundane than that. Yeah, so coming across, and both the other guys would have done transatlantic trails in various different aeroplanes, but the way they would have done it is take off from their base in South Carolina, join up with, uh, I think, two Voyager, so converted A330s, um, we use them for transport and uh, and tanking, so converted to be able to um, carry the fuel and uh, dispense the fuel out of um, wing hoses. And uh, they would have followed that across the Atlantic, and they would have topped up when they needed to top up so that they always had enough fuel to be able to divert to a base um, uh, you know, somewhere near where they were. Um, and that was the reason they were delayed yesterday. There was an awful lot of very poorly written press about it, uh, today um, and some fu- very funny headlines about um, the newest most expensive all-weather fighter in the world um, that was uh, scuppered by the weather um, 
but that was a diversion thing. The diversions were unfit, uh, so the guys would have had nowhere to go if something had gone wrong. And also, the sea state was too high for their... We, you, we do lots of sea drills. If you end up ejecting, you end up in a little single-man dinghy. And uh, that in anything above sort of six, seven-meter waves can get a little bit dicey. So, uh, yeah, it was a safety call yesterday. But that's how they did it. So they uh, followed the uh, the tanker all the way over up until the last bracket, at which point they would have climbed, accelerated away, and, uh, and got to Marham as quick as they could. Fantastic. Now, eight hours in a confined space sounds not like not very much fun. So I was wondering, what is the longest that each of you have been in, um, in a single-seat co- cockpit, or indeed just a cockpit in one of those confined, confined spaces. What were you doing? What, what was it like? You can go first, Dunk. All right. Um, I think my record in, uh, in a Harrier was six and a half hours, I think it was. So it was, uh, it was over Afghanistan, and it was just a, um, uh, a sortie that kept being extended just because they needed the, the pod that I had, the eyes on the ground. There was all sorts of things kicking off that particular night, uh, uh, and it was... Um, one of those ones you'd run out of fuel is actually one of the most amazing things um, was what the tanker boys uh, did for us out in Afghanistan. So you'd you'd run out of fuel. You had to go straight line home. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't make it back with enough fuel. Amazing. And they'd say, no, we need you on task somewhere else. You'd say, well, the only way that you that I can do that is if you roll a tanker out in front of me between me and uh, when I get back to Kandahar. And sure enough, about... Ten minutes later, a tanker would roll out in front of you. You plug in, get some more fuel, and then go off and do this next task. Uh, and it happened twice in a row. So you ended up um, being airborne for six hours that particular night. Wow. I think it was six. It might have been eight. I know I was desperate for a wee. So, yeah, two follow-on questions from Martin. Probably I... after half an hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I just hope you didn't go hyperglycemic, Dunk. That, um, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. I was very grumpy when I got back. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> Just two follow-on questions from that then, Dunk. Um, one, I I assumed, actually, that when you were going to give me your, your long flights, there'd be more boring things, like basically getting from the UK to the US or what, whatever it may be. I wasn't expecting you to say something operational. How did that affect your concentration in hour six? That was, uh, you know, we did do those flights as well, but um, no, this particular one was, um, yeah, was a, was uh, was operational, and actually it was pretty standard out uh, out in Afghanistan. You might be fragged for a, a four-hour uh, time on task and then that would get extended and extended so you know but you do get pretty fatigued doing that for you know long periods of time like that so the, the know, time kind of goes it goes quite quickly when you're in those um longer trips um it, it it's obviously dependent on what you're doing um the guys flying back today they would have had maybe half an hour 40 minutes something like that um between air to air refueling bursts uh, and that in itself will take well it depends how many were on each tanker but uh, you know that'll take a fair few minutes to uh, to cycle the guys through but you're concentrating very hard on that bit the adrenaline goes up because you've got to uh, you know you've got to take your fuel in order to get to your divert if you don't take your fuel then that means the entire trail is diverting somewhere that you didn't want to and all of them would have known that there was a significantly high-powered party waiting for them when they got back from uh, ministers to chiefs of the air staff and all of that sort of stuff so they would have put themselves under i'm sure a lot of pressure which meant that the whole thing will have gone quickly and it's one of those things when you are concentrating it goes quick you don't really notice but you do notice afterwards once you got out you've done the debrief you do feel fatigued um, at that point because you have been concentrating for that long so just on that one then 
so they're quite interesting, he said. They were cycling to get fuel every 30 to 40 minutes. Does that mean they were just trying to keep as, as much fuel on board as they could? Because that can't yeah, exactly be... That. Yeah, yeah they, I mean, they must be able to fly for more than 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all about keeping it up to, uh, you know, as close to, uh, if you like, as close to full as possible because um, there's not a huge amount of diversion airfields yeah. when you're mid-Atlantic. So you've got to have the range to be able to get there if something goes wrong with a tanker, if one of the jets, there's something up and you need to divert. Um, you know, it's just a, a procedure that we use. It doesn't happen in the airlines, obviously, because there's a massive aeroplanes with enough fuel to essentially go and divert wherever they need to. Yeah, and ultimately there's not much else to do, so you may as well just cycle cycle through and, and, and get fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how um, how about you then? How about you then, Goddess? What's it, what's the longest flight that, that that you've been on when you've been flying? Yeah, I think it was seven seven and a half hours, something like that. That was on a in an F sixteen in Iraq. Um, it was a a mission a bit like Dunks actually that that ended up getting extended. Um, I do remember being really tired at the end of this one because think uh, that's airborne for seven seven and a half hours but you sat in the cockpit i don't know half an hour 40 minutes an hour beforehand um and then obviously you land and there's you you may be in for 20 minutes when you taxi back get out then you've got to go and de-kit then you're um debriefing as well um and in that situation we were essentially out of work straight away and then back in with the minimum crew rest to go and do the same thing uh, really the following night so what kind of tactics do you employ to keep an aircraft in the air as long as possible? Um, It's very much like I talked about the trail. Knowing where your diversions are, knowing where the fuel tankers are, it's a a complicated thing, you know, and I really enjoyed that if you were leading a big mission, um, knowing exactly, uh, you know, who you had to cycle through the tankers, if the tankers could actually, as Dunk said, turn up and uh, and appear in front of you, were they uh, at a distance where you couldn't actually get to them? You know, uh, what was your, did you have any weapons left on board? You know, uh, were you burning too much gas? All of those sorts of things going, and also primarily what's going on on the ground if if you're supporting people on the ground. Um, so, uh, you know, some real high pressure situations in terms of, uh, of deciding um, when you've got to go to the tank or whether you've just got to depart the area to get back. Excellent. Uh, and Big Tone? Yeah, I did five more minutes longer to you than Dunk, actually. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in which aircraft? He was on the way to Eleven Reef. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're having a, a long trip off. Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I'm trying to think the, the sort of Bosnia trips that did F3 and F16. The F3 ones are about five hours normally. They were always at night, they seem to be, so they got quite quite tiring and uh, I think it was two, two uh, that we used to plug in and um, probably the longest would have been I guess you know, two for uh, five minutes longer than Dunk actually uh, so about <laughs> six hours 35 um, to 11 so you, you had to uh, you had quite a long way to transit back way behind enemy lines didn't you <laughs> <laughs> it was particularly scary back there actually <laughs> someone had to do it Dunk he's very brave <laughs> yeah so uh the um i'm trying to sort of wrap my brain to the the sort of bosnia sorties i did those um with the f3 and uh f16 they were sort of five hours they were generally two two tanker plugs um uh, but I'm, i think the longest one i did would have been on the uh on the phantom when we used to do 
uh, scrambling against sort of the Russians back in the 80s. And uh, we definitely had some sort of six-hour pluses. Um, and then there was ferrying the jets to Cyprus, which was probably as long. But, uh, yeah, echo what the boy said. You know, it is, it's uh, you know, 30 minutes of boredom followed by five minutes of, uh, of adrenaline and, uh, and making sure that you, uh, you don't rip the probe off when you pluck because uh, that can be quite embarrassing. Oh, and, and have you ever done that? No, I, I've been lucky. I, I've seen boys uh, have what we call spokes. So they, uh, instead of hitting the middle of the uh, of the uh, basket, they sort of hit it at either a jaunty angle. And the probe, it should get sort of slotted into the middle, but it doesn't. It goes through the kind of metal bits. And oh, wow. it, you call it a spokes. And hopefully, very gingerly, ease out and hope that you don't uh, break the, uh, the basket in the process, uh, which you often do. And then... Uh, and I definitely at one stage saw a mate land with the uh, essentially the basket attached to his probe. Oh, which is quite a, so, yeah, the sort of the the, the the transit back of shame. And, and I imagine most jets are the same that if you if you can't put the uh, the probe back in, most of your fuel tanks are then unpressurized and you've you've pretty much just got internal fuel. So uh, it it can get a bit tense. Wow. That's um yeah jb the um the basket is a big old heavy bit of kit um and <laughs> the station commander at raf marham he'll love you for saying this yes <laughs> what Who... was his name <laughs> go on tell us what his I'm, name is i'm, I'm going to tell you his nickname right. i'm sure you can google him somewhere but the um his nickname is cab because <laughs> he he went off on his first tanking sortie i think it was on the squadron uh because we didn't do tanking when we went through the uh the conversion unit on the harrier yeah and he got to the squadron and off he went uh they were tanking off of the uh the north sea just over by newcastle and it all got a bit tense and the uh the basket essentially whacked the canopy on the top of the uh, uh on the top Ooh. smashed the canopy <gasps> completely and he ended up flying a, a cabriolet back to uh, landing at Newcastle with the world's worst ice cream headache. Oh, I can only imagine how awful that is. I can only imagine. I mean, I've, I've tried to stick my head out of a car window at 90 miles an hour, and that's, and that's pretty difficult. Yeah, he, he, I was talking to him about it just the other day, actually. He did not like it in the slightest, you know, absolutely freezing cold. Um, he'd just broken something that he knew was going to be very expensive. Oh, um, and, uh, and you don't know, uh, you know, and joking aside... All those bits of, uh, of perspex slash glass you know, going down, possibly going down the engine, a single-engine aeroplane. Oh, yeah. Um, he was thinking all sorts of things. So, uh, yeah. It's not but, a good scenario in any way. Is it? And also but, the noise, actually, when you uh, when you break that canopy. So I, I lost a canopy with from a bird strike at, um, at low level. And the noise is just phenomenal. That... So, uh, it's it's an assault on the senses and you know the last thing he'll have been expecting is for his canopy to explode so you imagine the flipping fright he got when the basket comes through the roof it must have been oh uh, quite an exciting time so that noise that noise dunk was you screaming though <laughs> oh yeah yeah i know yeah yeah so i did it all the way back as well how long didn't even, didn't even breathe in how long did it take you to work out what had happened to your canopy was a bird strike did you know instantly or were you a little bit flustered. Did it take a couple of minutes to settle down and then go through a few checks? No, was it I was definitely not flustered in any way, shape, or form. As I remember, <laughs> I was incredibly calm throughout. You, you, identi- <laughs> you identified the species and breed of the bird incoming. Exactly, yeah. 
No, I was actually, I was, um, I was looking the other way because <laughs> that's, that's like a funny thing to say, but we were doing a, um, we we're doing a bounce sortie, which means that you're looking for another aircraft attacking you. So I was looking way behind my, my, the other aircraft. We were in a pair of aircraft flying line abreast by about a mile and a half. And I was looking behind his aircraft. So I, I wasn't looking out the front, which was, it sounds careless, but, um, it's kind of what you've got to do. And, um, so I didn't didn't see the thing coming at all, um, but of course it's it's fairly self-explanatory, you know. As once you uh, you get over the fact that this huge, um, I mean, it is it's a it's a big shock when um, when that the, the the massive noise happens when the canopy breaks, and of course the there's the problem that the uh, either the bird or parts of the bird or the canopy can go down the uh, the intake as well. Jeez. So exactly what God has just explained with um, with cab doing his uh, his problems with tanking and um so uh, but you see the blood on the windscreen and you kind of go as oh, a bird strike and uh, and um but the weird thing was so you didn't that, end up having to wrestle a massive cross seagull in the cockpit no it, it was definitely <laughs> did so um but it, it took out <clears throat> it, it didn't break the windscreen it, it hit just at the canopy arch and it took out all of the can- the canopy behind the canopy arch um but so i had a guy in the back cockpit as well and so i slowed down and i climbed um and um but i then had quite a long transit because i was in the middle of wales i, I went and landed at lambeda uh, was my closest airfield but um it you know it took 10 minutes to get there well and um, what were you flying a hawk a hawk yeah and um <laughs> but the um just so then when you've done everything and there's nothing else to do you can't make any radio calls because you can't hear anything because it's bloody noisy and uh there's that re- <laughs> that uh that human trait of oh blimey well i wonder if i just put my hand out the window what would <laughs> <laughs> did, did you didn't. oh no, no. Three, 300 miles an hour i, I reckon it would uh, uh it, it wouldn't have uh, gone well for me well so, you know, well and, uh, and well you'll never know now mate did you do a fixed throttle, um, or uh, you know, get to the uh, the overhead and do a PFL in? Uh, I think I just left the throttle where it was and just did a, a fixed throttle straight in landing. Wow, that's uh, I'm I'm quite glad I asked those questions now. Well done, guys! Congratulations! Good, 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 yeah, who, good body. Who, who knew you'd dig up more stories? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, as you alluded to before. Uh, it is the sixth of June. It's actually quarter to nine when we record. When we're recording, so does it, uh, so what was D Day? Seventy four, seventy four years ago. Yeah. Seven. So by this time, seventy four four years ago, uh, over four 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 uh, four thousand people had lost their, lost their lives on the beaches. So I think it's maybe an appropriate time to talk about today's sub t- today's subject. So uh, I'll let I'll let Dunk introduce this because you've done some fantastic work. Well, um, but thanks for saying it. The um, I, it was just one of those things that um, that happened when uh, I was on BBMF with uh, Parky was there as well. In fact, I think God is, I think all three of us were there at yeah, the yeah. time, uh, and um, I just decided I would try and record as many veterans uh, as I could um, uh, from all different walks of the Air Force. Um, most of them were air crew. I did some ground crew as well, but I, I think I recorded about thirty five. Uh, different uh, individuals, um, bomber crew, fighter crew, uh, and one of the the people that I had the the great privilege of interviewing uh, was Eric Winkle Brown, 
uh, and who was a, a, I think I'm right in saying the most prolific test pilot uh, that's ever lived. I think he had 473 types that he flew, different oh types. Oh, my word. Uh, and um, so I went down and I met him in a restaurant and he very kindly uh, agreed to be interviewed. And uh, and and so there was just uh, some phenomenal stories that, that came out from that. And uh, we've got a little clip of that interview now. Yeah, 487 different types, 2,407 deck landings, and 2,721 carrier takeoffs. <laughs> Those are staggering numbers. Right, well, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a second. Here is uh, a clip that he did with, did, did with Dunk previously. I'm Captain Eric Brown, and uh, I was in the free alarm for 32 years. Most of my time as the chief naval test pilot, but um, I had a very, very exciting and uh, happy service life. Well, can we um, we'll go right back to the beginning, uh, as, uh, as I, I do with uh, all my interviews, and right. just to see you know exactly where that started. So. Um, was it from school that you began your your career? Was it uh, you know? Did you join from school? Did you join directly into the navy? How did it come about that you ended up right. joining the navy? I had a father who had been in the Air Force in the World War One. Well, he was in the RFC as it was then called. He was originally a balloon observer. Decided that was too dicey, and uh, he would become a pilot. And he was training uh, in the RFC when the war finished, so he never saw action in that, although he had many exciting moments as a balloon observer. And, uh, of course, when you have somebody like that in the family, you're subjected all the time to um, stories about the... But flying, and uh, it influences your outlook very much, and uh, certainly influenced mine. And as I grew up, I went to, from school to univer- Edinburgh University to study modern languages. And at the same time, they had a university escort, and I joined that. My father was very insistent I do that. And um, from there, I was uh, serving, I'd just come back from Germany uh, on a foreign office posting, actually. And um, at that time, early in the war, in September the war, HMS Courageous was sunk in the Irish Sea. And the fleet arm lost very large number of pilots. So a notice board, and a notice went up on the notice board, saying that the fleet arm was short of pilots, and if anybody would like to volunteer, bend their name. Now I was one of these young king people, couldn't wait to get into action, and um, I felt I was sitting doing nothing at Drem on the first of fourth. And um, when this notice went up, I signed up. And um, to my utter astonishment, I thought they would jump at somebody who had, that time, about 200 hours, these logbooks, thinking, oh, I'm the person they're waiting for. Not in you and Nelly. 
they sent me straight back to train the way the Navy did things for carrier aviation, of course. And so I joined my first squadron in uh, early 1941. And we were assigned to the very first and very smallest carrier ever built called um, Audacity. It became HMS Audacity originally, but in fact it was a captured German banana boat. And Churchill had the brilliant idea of slicing the top off this and putting a flight deck on it. And we had uh, originally six wildcats that were called martlets in those days because the, their lordships decided wildcat wasn't the name for them. But um, we had no hangar and uh, only, well normally on an aircraft carrier you have up to ten arrest of wires. We had three. Uh, two normally used. Uh, third was connected to the crash barrier and if you caught that you were pulled up very abruptly and the barrier went down way flat that wire was known as the for Christ's sake wire <laughs> I'm sure that's the polite version <laughs> and, but um, for the pilots it wasn't too bad but I often think the ground crew must have had a terrible time because they were in open air all the time maintenance could only be done at night and they weren't allowed to have anything to see with other than a torch with blue paper over there the thing. so they were working under horrendous conditions despite of that we had wonderful serviceability we were pretty successful because in um, two convoys, we were sunk on the return trip on the second convoy, but up to that time we had destroyed five um, Fokker Wolf uh, couriers, they were called, which was the military version of the Condor, Fokker Wolf 200. So we had, um, I think, paid our way. Can I just wind back just a little bit because I, I, I would imagine that it's easy, you know, to um, to talk about uh, th those things um, uh, and, and perhaps not give them the, uh, the the merit that they deserve. So uh, to, to wind back, what, which squadron was that? What was the squadron number that you this joined? Was on 802 order? squadron. 802. 802. Okay, and uh, that was so six Hellcats on Audacity. Wildcats. Wildcats. Sorry, Wildcats, yeah. uh, and. Um, just then to, to, to wind back you said you were sunk on the 21st of December 1941 just expand on that base, just a little bit yes um, we were convoy protection of course and yeah. we were usually at night we were in the middle of the convoy uh, because the last thing they wanted was us to be hit because we were their daytime protection but we were actually hit in spite of all that and the one torpedo that went at us uh, completely destroyed the rudder so we had no steering and uh, the captain decided uh, we were running wild like that we were a menace to the rest of the convoy so he went out clear of them he just let them steam past and then went clear and um, we were 
steering any old twelve. We were just keeping up speed to hope to avoid U-boat attack, but we had no directional control. And uh, probably, we never know, we were maybe going around in circles, but eventually we were, um, the U-boat that had done this damage surfaced. Uh, we had we had uh, actually heaved to because the um, captain decided we couldn't run around like this and I, we might hit the convoy again. So he surfaced about 200 yards away from us. The captain of the U-boat was absolutely stark clear to us in there because when it came up it was covered in phosphorescence. It was like um, really being covered in fairy lights. So we could see him quite clearly, and there was this dreadful hiatus where we just stood each looking at the other. And eventually, somebody's nerve cracked, and one of the sailors jumped forward and fired a 20 millimeter, one of our cannon, defensive cannon, at the submarine, without hoping really to do any damage. But it upset, obviously, a captain of the U-boat, and he fired four torpedoes, all of which hit. And um, we sank very, very rapidly indeed. Gosh. And... Uh, did you try and... Did you fly the aeroplanes off? Or was oh, there... no hope at all. They were all... Um, it was dusk when this happened, and they were all tied down, and the horrendous thing was... Uh, when the torpedoes hit, they hit the bows of the ship, which completely fell off. We had just no front end of the ship. So she reared up, and all the lashings on the aircraft snapped with a tremendous twang. And by this time, the captain had called the whole ship's company onto the flight deck, in the best hope of survival. And suddenly, these airplanes charged down the deck, and killed dozens of people on the deck. Oh. We had very, very heavy losses indeed. We lost about two-thirds of the ship's company. And where were you at this time? Where were you stood? Well, I heard the, the uh, lashing snap. It was like a, a tremendous twang. And um, I just rushed to the side and jumped. And probably we... We were probably some 50 to 60 feet reared up at this stage. And the worry was, of course, you didn't know if you were going to jump on anybody in the water. Sure. But you just had to take your chance. But all was well. And um, one, I had a Mae West on. And once you were clear, uh, of course, we were all worried about getting sucked under as the ship went down. So one swam like you know, in the Olympics to get clear. And um, the survivors um, began to congregate around each other because we had one or two life rafts, but they were absolutely full. Um, and I was able to just hang on to the side of one. But um, the sailors, whereas we pilots had made West, the sailors only had what were really inner tubes of tires around them with tapes over the shoulders. And um, 
after about half an hour I guess um, there were 24 of us left and we and this group we were with there were more elsewhere uh, and we were saw a frigate which was picking up people and we swam towards it hollering for help and it suddenly took off now the reason it took off was we didn't notice at the time it got an astic ping submarine was still there the last thing it wanted was to be torpedoed with a huge number of survivors on board. So we were left, and 24 of us, and we tied each, uh, two with Mae West, two pilots, the rest all seamen. And of course, the Bay of Biscay, 21st of December, it was cold to say the least. And um, they, all those with in a tube type in the West, uh, fell asleep and drowned. And um, we were all tied together, but there's nothing we could do, just cut off the chaps as they, as they fell asleep and drowned and let them drift away. And in the morning, there were only two pilots left. Uh, well, it wasn't, yes, it was dawn when the frigate came back and picked us up. Good Lord. Mm -hmm. So we were very lucky, saved by, really by our neighbors, because they keep your head out of the water, even if you fall asleep, which we did. So you'd fallen asleep? Oh, we, we'd both fallen asleep, yeah, but... Uh, Through the we, cold? We were tied together. I suppose it was hypothermia, yes, because when we were hoisted aboard the frigate, um, I couldn't stand up. I just, you know, I, I had no feeling in my legs. So you just fell fell onto the deck. And um, but after a couple of rums or something, you know, life came back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a couple of tots. Good Lord. Well, I, I, as I suspected, <laughs> there's a, a little more to the, the story of just being sunk, isn't there? If you can ever say just being sunk, that's the most phenomenal story. Um, and so out of your group, yourself and the other pilots survived, and how many survived from the entire ship's company? Very few by the sound uh, of A third survived. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gosh. So there were something like uh, 400 odd lost. Where did you go from there? From there, uh, um, when I got back, um, I was... Well, in my all this happened because in my confidential report, a captain, which was already in the Admiralty before we were sunk, uh, but one of the previous trip when we got home and all the reports went, he had said that I had a facility for deck landing and that the Admiralty should use this. And strangely enough, they lived up to their word and um, I was sent test flying. First unit I went to was the service trials unit. The first job I was given was to land a sea fire on an escort carrier. Fantastic. Don't don't good work. Who knew that you were such a good interviewer? <laughs> <laughs> well, um Thanks very much. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Look at that, speechless. Well, I, li I like the fact that uh, I think we should reintroduce the phrase not on your Nelly um, <laughs> to the wider public because Winkle used it and I think it's great. Yeah, there's, um, <laughs> there's a certain kitsch value to that. It's, it's almost hard to fathom 
the feeling of being on a ship as it's going down. I mean, to, to the point, actually, that the whole thing is unbelievable. Well, I think what was remarkable about it was, uh, and you heard from the clip there, you know, he was just, he said, well, and then that... Uh, and then he was going to gloss over some, it. Yeah, I, and then uh, I went off to the Admiral who said, well, just hang on a second. And, you know, I, I guess that does epitomise um, the guys, actually. They, they're, they're incredibly humble, actually, uh, about what they did and, and, and what happened. And sometimes you, like, like I did then, you almost have to, to prize it out of them. Um, and... Um, but uh, it, as you say, the picture he paints um, of uh, of that incident um, and what he and all of those uh, those other guys went through. I mean, having lost, what did, I think, did he say they lost four hundred four hundred crew and only yeah, a one... third survived? So out of the six hundred on board, they lost four hundred that night. Yeah, uh, yeah, a third of them survived. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's unbelievable. I mean, he started off as well with HMS Courageous sinking, so the fleet air arm was short of pilots. Um, yeah, as to the way that he got in as well. I, I'm, I'm with you, JB, and Dunk. You know, just amazing. And if you ever read any of his books as well, that is just one two hundredth of a story that's uh, that's in there. So you know, maybe that's why he is glossing over it almost because there's. There's so many of them, you know, and and but you can imagine at the time. Can you imagine if that happened now, the news, the global news that that would make, and, and you know, and that's just a a ten minute story w- which covers a huge range of loss of life as well, you know. I just, when he talks about the the massive noise of the uh, uh, the lashings breaking as this ship is almost vertical, and these uh, wildcats you know, essentially falling off the back of the deck and killing a bunch of people in front of him there and him having to jump off the side. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it is incredible. It kind of makes you think that something like that just wouldn't happen today for for, for many reasons. In fact, it's one of the questions that I, that I wanted to, to ask you through because you've all been in, in positions of significant command. Um, how would you feel if you had to give orders for lads... To, I mean, the mission that, Wing, that Winkle Brown was on was a relatively normal mission. But how would you feel if you had to give orders, for instance, for 617 Squadron, knowing that a lot of your boys wouldn't come back? I mean, these sort of things just don't happen nowadays. No, I think it's uh, it's one of those things that we are in a completely different world where, uh, you know, losses have kind of become unacceptable uh now who knows you know in the future with whatever might happen but um that was of their time you know and i guess in a uh, in a global war of survival you did what you needed to do you know like i said he didn't bat an eyelid there about the fact that the fleet air arm had lost so many people on the sinking of a ship up in the irish sea um and, <laughs> and he volunteered that... immediately to 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 join up and go and do that but I think human beings as well, I can't remember if we've spoken about this on a previous podcast, but human beings do have this ability to, to normalise things and things that are extreme very quickly become normal. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to belittle it at no, all. No, absolutely, uh, absolutely the opposite. But I think there's that mixed with the, I think a, a, a lot of them, and I think we probably have the same mindset now that uh, it won't be me that gets it and you kind of think what well, you don't think of the losses you think of you know the the mission that's got to be accomplished 
and you don't focus on the fact well you know we we could lose a a few tonight um uh, and and certainly when we spoke to the veterans um it was always their mindset that no, it wasn't going to be them that got the chop it would be someone else you know if if it happened um so well, i didn't think you, that, didn't you find that um you know when you guys have flown in operations especially when you were younger you were bulletproof you know you were always coming back i don't think you you could step out the door if you didn't think you were so yeah, sure. yeah. yeah but we we had nothing like the boys back in the day did we i mean it was oh, of it course was of course not how they accepted it and the, the thing that you said got us about you know that story the, the book i remember reading it but it was a bit like reading jeffrey wellham's first light but it, I, I think it's um wings on my sleeve by yeah. um by uh, Eric Winkle Brown, and it was one of those I just couldn't put down. And it was just—I I don't know if you've read it, JB. But I haven't. I, I, I completely recommend it. It's one of those you cannot believe this happened, and it's just one story. You know, just the stuff he does in the war. As, as Dunk mentioned, the aircraft he flies, but it's just extraordinary coincidence. He happens to be—he interviews Goering, he interviews Yuri Gagarin, he is at the end of the war, you know, when he is literally taking, you know, st- you know, stealing the German jets and bringing them back to Farnborough. And, and in the meantime, he just flies in so many conflicts. And it's just, it is quite extraordinary how he just happens to be, he, he actually liberates a concentration camp. And it's like, <laughs> how, how could he have been there? But, you know, it, th- these stories that he has are utterly extraordinary. And, you know, th- the book is just one of those, it, it's completely you just cannot put it down it is just it's incredible isn't it no it is i, I made i made a uh, a faux pas when i went to interview him i was uh, i was there with uh, tony iveson who was uh, both spitfire and a lancaster pilot as well and went up against the turpit so uh, and um they decided we were going to have lunch so we, we met in the in a restaurant and we, but we were having lunch after uh, i'd done the interview with uh, with eric um and i said well you know i've um i've i've you know read your book and he said which one? I've written twenty-two. <laughs> I was like, ah, uh, really? <laughs> but wings on wings on my sleeve, I think, is the best, the best known, and certainly those stories that Parky talks about. Um, um, it is uh, an incredible page turner because there's never a period in it um, where something incredible isn't happening. Yeah. So, even well, uh... to the point, do you remember the point where they? Uh pick up a pair of um, brand new machines called helicopters that I think it's uh, Liverpool docks essentially put them together um, work out how to fly them and then transit them to where they were going <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lots of there, there was, uh, I had the utter privilege of being at his funeral uh, extraordinarily enough I went with Jez who was the station at the time and in the eulogy that the family and he was it was just just an extraordinary man but there was this story about him in Russia he happens to be in Russia and he's going to fly a spit back or a single seat fighter and he sees a bloke beating up a dog and he sort of stops the guy doing it he goes oh i'll take the dog back with me in the cockpit from russia you know like you do and he said this dog was a bit snarly and sort of sat with him as he flew this spitfire back you know and god knows how many the... so many times to get it back hang on where did he put where did he put the dog in the cockpit with him what in a single seat <laughs> yeah on his lap just sorry so... just I, I i hate i hate to interrupt because i know it's really rude There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I just want you to imagine putting a dog in a cockpit of a it's, Harrier it, or Eurofighter. Yeah, Sorry, it's typhoon. incredible. It's incredible. But essentially, JB, he, he gets the dog back, takes it to a vet and goes, dog's a bit snarly. And the vet goes, it's a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and he, surely and not. He flew back with a wolf on his That was the worst interruption by me ever. I'll never interrupt you again, Big Tone, after that. Tony Ison says as well, he said that uh, they came out of... Um, he gave a, a presentation at the Air Force Club and Tony was there with him. Um, and he said, you know, because, well, as his nickname suggests, Winkle Brown, he's a diminutive, or was a diminutive figure. Uh, and he said they, they left the Air Force Club and they, they went out onto Piccadilly um, and uh, this this little old man in a, in a raincoat turned left and walked out, and all these people are streaming by. And Tony said he he watched him, thinking all of these people are walking past this man, having absolutely no idea both the things he's done and what he's achieved for aviation. You know, he he was a great great man. Yeah. So it, there was a, there was a couple of other things in that that story that. Um, I about to say caught my eye, but that's not right. Um, but uh, he started off in a, in a UAS, a University Air Squadron. Now, JB, I think, actually, out of the four of us, you're the only one who went to university. Um, <laughs> did, uh, Badly. Was that, was that something you saw down... Uh, you were down Bristol Way, weren't you? I was down Bristol Way, yeah. Yeah. It, did, did you have any idea that there was a Bristol University Air Squadron or, or any of that sort of thing? Um no, my entire university career over two years uh, involved two... This is not a joke. It involved two lectures in two years. It, it, to say it wasn't a success, that might, be an, that might be an understatement. However, I was lucky enough to live in a house overlooking Fil- Filton Airfield. So if it was, it'd be somewhere around there, I'm guessing. Well, no, exactly. I think um, uh, I, certainly they ended up at... Uh, um, is it Cologne that's down there? Uh, the Bristol UAS. But, uh, I mean, the whole thing about University Air Squadrons, I just, um, 
uh, in my last job as station commander, um, we used to get the university air squadrons coming up and uh, they'd come up on their tutor detachments, the little airplanes that they fly. Um, and so, you know, I was going off to chat to them. I had a quick look at the history of it. I mean, and, and you know, they actually started quite early, but about, around about 1928 that they took off. Um, when, uh, you know, early on in around sort of 1918, 19, they realized that they needed to get people with degrees involved in aviation because previously it had just been people jumping into the airplanes and giving it a go, but they wanted some science behind it. And it evolved into these university air squadrons, which were attracting people to uh, to come and fly. So there were tons of guys Is that right? like Eric, yeah, who, um, who got a taste of flying through a university air squadron, often people who couldn't afford to go flying on the outside. Mm. But then the other thing that he said is, you know, at the time that he joined the Fleet Air Army, he had a couple of hundred hours, which is a lot by our standards today. Um, they still sent him off for additional training. You know, it wasn't a feed him straight into the war. So, um, you know, it's not always what you think of, of you know, the, the classic Battle of Britain film of, you know, 12 hours on spits or whatever it is. Um, there was a huge amount of training involved. Yeah. Well, so uh, just just off on a tangent. I don't suppose you know what the makeup of uh, aviators were prior to the Second World War. I'm guessing it's a mix of people who could afford to build aeroplanes and people who were, well, very, very brave. Yeah, I don't know whether any of the, the other boys want to come in, but the um, but definitely it was um, it was a huge mix of, of tons of different people. You know, you had um, officers uh, who were pilots, you had NCOs who were pilots who were brought in from all walks of life, from people who would join the Air Force on a full-time basis before people who are volunteer reserve people who are you know volunteer reserve as part of um the university air squadrons and people who were just walking in off the street who, who demonstrate an aptitude um, yeah i think the RAF has always had a massive cross-section hasn't it um you know as, as you know from the, the the rich to you know anybody with a love of aviation the holton engineers they would they would the, the apprentices the, the dream of the apprentices those boys and they would go pilot you know and it was it was so that Essentially, anybody, you know, with enough drive, determination, hopefully, you know, skill to do it, you know, could become a pilot. And that was that was always a mindset. You know, it wasn't a I think the the army and the, the Navy were more, you know, I, I think. Selective. More so, yeah. And socially, you know, an officer was an officer kind of thing. Whereas I think almost deliberately the RAF didn't want that. We wanted to embrace technology. And that was the main aim. You know, it was real cutting edge stuff at the time. And. And, uh, you know, didn't want society to be a limit on that. You know, anybody who, who had the nous could do it. Yeah. And, that, you know, the it's the apprenticeship side of things is something that um, is front and center in the RF 100, um, uh, you know, uh, themes that we put out this year. I mean, it's easy. It will be easy for the Royal Air Force to talk about RF 100 in terms of, you know, as we do quite a lot of time on this um, in terms of Battle of Britain. But it's actually about the technology and the advances in technology from a um you know a sort of socially mobile um broad base of people if you like um and uh you know every single walk of society who has come in and and you know definitely for the next hundred years we're looking at you know who is going to be the next um frank whittle you know who the equivalent of that guy who i think he was at cranwell as a as a university cadet, if you like, when, or an officer cadet, when um, he put out his thesis for the design of the jet engine at about, uh, I forget what it is, 21, 22 years old. Um, you know, so who was the next person, the, the you know, who the, who were the people like that that are going to, you know, spend the next 100 years inventing whatever comes next? 
Sadly, um, I sadly I imagine it's going to be some some kid on an um, on an Xbox who's going to end up being a drone ace. Well, I, honestly, mate, that's what we want. You know, we <laughs> want people who do that sort of stuff. Uh, I guess that the difficulty with spending so long in an organisation is you tend to do stuff the way that you've already, uh, you've always done it. Um, I've always said in F thirty five, for example, we need to get some really good Xbox gamers. Um, and put them in the simulator and see how they do it. And if we go, oh, blimey, I didn't know you could do it like that, that's what we want. When they re- that's the way to do it. When they reinvent all of your control surfaces. <laughs> you know, exactly. Actually, you know, we, 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 are, we do have the, you know, the unit I'm on at the moment, Central Fly School, has a, a, a part of it called the Smith-Barry uh, Institute that looks at those kind of things. It's just done a, a study into virtual reality, um, and how you can exactly as you say, God, as you can take these guys and go, well, actually, what we want to do is we can't throw all the money in the world at it. But if we can do something and we can go, right, let's put someone in there that, and it's going to it's going to break the mold. It's going to change how we do things and uh, and reform how we, we, we think that we need to train people for different platforms. So we, we've got um we, we, you know, we do have lines into that, and so the Air Force does think in those ways. We could do with a lot more people doing it, but um, but but you know, we've uh, at least we've got that as a start. But interestingly, going back to uh, I think what Parky said in terms of uh, the the Holton apprentices and stuff, um, within the interviews that I did, and you know, we, we listened to uh, to Winkle's uh, interview there, but there was also a guy called Bill Green um, who I interviewed, and he told me he was a um, uh, an apprentice and he became a, a fitter on hurricanes um and when he went um he told me that when he went to the squadron um so he'd done the some pilot training um and he went to the squadron and the co said well you know hurricanes already just go and get in one and off you go <laughs> so he um he tells this story of of try, of starting this thing up he had no idea how to do it he started this thing up he got it airborne but he departed it he span it um, and he nearly crashed off the end of the runway when he landed. And he got this massive telling off from the CEO. He said, what the bloody hell do you think you're doing? He said, I've only seen a hurricane once. I'll fix the engine. I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's a bit like my first go. Doug, was it you who was telling me a story about about an aviator in Second World War who managed to lose an aircraft? Uh, what do you mean, lose one? As in... Uh, yeah, the Put crushed... it somewhere he couldn't remember. Yeah, yeah, something like that, and no one ever asked a question about it um, no, ever it again. Was the, uh, it was the dropping off the the single engine Anson that he crashed, wasn't it, Dunk? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was. Yeah, it was William Walker. Um, yeah. yeah, So we we were talking about that, and no one ever asked the question about where the Anson went. <laughs> yeah. The, so the other thing I noticed in the uh, <laughs> the. Um, in Winkle's little dit there was, uh, and I have no idea why, why we did this as Brits or why the fleet air arm did this. I mean, you know, you obviously can see what the link is, but the F four F wildcat, mm-hmm. quite a fierce sounding aeroplane. Yet <laughs> when it came into British service, we called it the martlet after a seabird. Um, and, I don't know how many uh, Eagle, Falcon and those sorts of things. And, uh, and we changed the name into something that's a, a lot more fluffy. I, I guess a very British thing to do. I was waiting for him to say he was then posted to the letter, lesser spotted wood pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, yeah. Or the full like that. 
We did it a lot, didn't we? Gannet, skewer. I think navy ships were named after little birds. <laughs> well, they did it well, with. So, well, so, sir, I lived in um, when uh, later on in his career, Winkle Brown was uh, the CO up at what is now Lossiemouth. Um, it was uh, HMS Fulmar then, and Fulmar is a is a seabird. It is. It's one that spits yeah, off rocks. Birds. Yeah, and uh, and so my claim to fame with Winkle is that I lived in his old house. Uh, the station commander's house uh, just outside the gate there at, uh, at Lossiemouth is um, is mentioned in his book. Uh, and uh, although I'm not, I can't remember. Does he mention the ghost? No. I can't remember that either. Okay. All right. Uh, that one for another time. But uh, yeah, the ghost in the house is a uh, uh, a legendary story. Um, I never saw it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, the the house does get a mention in that book, which uh, I you know I was really proud of to go and live there. Uh, so, Do you remember, there's a bit in the uh, there's a bit in the book where because he, he's fluent German speaker, isn't he? He's, he's yeah. pre war. He's you know he's at the the Munich uh, the um, uh, Olympics in Berlin. Sorry, in thirty. Well, he flew with Ernst Udet, didn't he? Yep, flew Ooh. with him, and he scared him because he did an inverted approach and then put the wings level at the last stage. But th- there's one unbelievable bit where it's right at the end of the war, so it's sort of early May forty five, and he's he's flying around and he's basically trying to get the uh, the German jets, and he's going to ferry them back to Farnborough so that we can get, you know, some of the technology at the time out of the, the you know, incredibly modern German aircraft, the, the jets that they had. And he lands at some base up sort of Schleswig-Holstein, and it's kind of like the 5th of May, something like that. And he, he's, I think he's commandeered a sort of Focke-Wulf 190, a German fighter anyway. And he lands in and sort of goes up and says, right, uh, I believe you've got some jets, you know, I'd like to fly on back. And the German officer there said, you know, we're still at war with you. And he's like, Oh, I thought you'd surrendered. And they're like, no. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that's a bit awkward. Um, and then... I'll, uh, I'll go get me wolf. Yeah. And then the, yeah, <laughs> the, the Germans go, yeah, well, well, can we surrender to you? And it's just, again, unbelievable he happened to be there. So he's like, well, uh, yeah, all right, you know, m- make an orderly coup, put your rifles down over there. Now, uh, how do you start this Messerschmitt 262? And, uh, and off he went. And it, just utterly unbelievable events that he had. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, yeah. there are so many components to that story, which are incredible. From you know the the very human side of, yeah, can we all surrender to you? Yeah, okay, go go throw your rifles over there, and almost the kind of the disregard of, yeah, okay, you've surrendered. Now, how do I fly this incredibly dangerous machine that I've never flown before? And then yeah. he goes and flies them, from the human to to the technical. It, it's it's unbelievable. And yeah. it wasn't that wasn't the most dangerous machine he flew as well. It the um. There's a story when he's over there as well about um, essentially sneaking off to fly the ME-163, the Comet, um, which is that tiny little thing that used to fly up between formations of bombers and then run out of fuel and and glide back. Um, And if you've ever – you can see old YouTube videos of um, the engine on this was powered by two incredibly volatile um, different fluids that when you mix them together made a massive bang. And so the engine essentially mixed these together at the back. No and, and I think I remember from the book, Parky's obviously um, either read it yesterday or has got a really good memory. No, I know he's got a really good memory because he can still remember the approach speed on a jet provost. Um, <laughs> but, inside, obviously. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. But uh, it was sorry. 95. T-38. Um, it's always 95. But he, uh, there, was, there was an edict, <laughs> an order that came out because so many Brit pilots were killing themselves trying to fly captured German aeroplanes. They said, right, no one no. is to fly these things uh, again. 
but he still snuck off and managed to get this uh, ME163 up into the air. And he was an accomplished glider pilot anyway. And in fact, I think he'd practiced. Didn't they tow him up in one? Yeah. Yeah, so he that he could it. glide it back, Clever. and then he went off uh, off of the rocket assisted um, launch. After that, I even, even the German, even the German ground crew were telling him, "Seriously, you don't want to fly this. It's bloody dangerous." You know, yeah. it was... and it was uh, it, if you landed a little bit too heavy on the skid, then it would blow up. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was just because <laughs> you'd crack the separator between the fuels, wouldn't you? Yeah, it would blow right up. Unbelievable. <laughs> One of the books is called uh, Wings of the Luftwaffe, and it's, about, it's generally, it, it's just, he, he's so succinct about describing every German aircraft, and, you know, of his 487 types, you know, probably 60 of them were German, and he flies every conceivable German aircraft, but in that, it, it sort of gets your attention, it, it says, Eric Winkle Brown, one of the most foolhardy things I did, and he's like, oh, this is going to be a good one, you know, because of all the stuff he's done, and he flies... It's called a, a Messerschmitt 109, but it was called the G12, and it was a two-seater. And, and you sat right down the back end of this two-seat 109. And from the front, the, the view is bad. But from the back, it's ridiculous. And he flew this thing solo from the back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, said, I'm just having a look at this. Got, he, well, he literally, he, he got airborne in it, and then he absolutely realised you could not see where you were going. <laughs> it's impossible to land. It, it was it it's an, it's an it's, ME109G. It's called a G12. It was it was the trainer version. They they made very very few of them. Oh and wow! Came, I'm looking at it now. Came across this thing, you know, sitting there, and he's like, "Well, oh, it looks a bit airworthy. I'll, I'll give it a go." But to then go, I'll fly it from the back <laughs> solo. I mean, it's just incredible. He must have been. There must have been a different level of bravery, and also a different level of accountability as well. <laughs> oh yeah yeah the, definitely the accountability side you know when you're sneaking in to fly a massively dangerous exploding <laughs> rocket um yeah uh, you know again well we said at the beginning uh, a completely different world it, it, you know might only have been 75 76 77 years ago but it was light years away from where we are now um yeah. but w- what's amazing i guess uh, actually i saw a little bit of this when um we were fortunate that myself duncan parkey went to uh old warden and on what was one of the most random days i've ever seen um duncan parkey ended up going solo in a faisless stork um this uh you know this little airplane up there uh bloke wouldn't let me go obviously he'd see me land the chipmunk um but um Essentially, when it comes to it, uh, you're doing the same thing in every single aeroplane. And, that, and it was the um, the female ATA pilots would always tell you, you know, when they'd get out of the Lancaster and go get in a Spitfire and go and deliver something else. As long as you knew where the flaps were, um, as long as you knew how to turn the fuel on, how to spark the engine up, um, you were pretty good, really. And it was the same thing happened in all of these different aeroplanes. You know, most of them were tail draggers, so it was the same way of landing these things, whether they were massive four-engine bombers or whether they were tiny little, um, you know, clandestine insertion reconnaissance machines. So is that is that what the stork was? I, was that a artillery spotter or was that something else? Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was... Uh, it was, yeah. uh, it was it, the, effectively, it was the German equivalent, equivalent of our Lysander. Yes. But it, so, it was but, tiny, wasn't it, Dunk? I mean, the Lysan is a massive, big, big old girl. Yeah, well, the, the it's a big aeroplane, but tiny cockpit. And it, and it had a, um, a bench seat in it, 
and the observer sat in the back so it was tandem the observer sat in the back no controls at all and you know just looked out the window clearly as uh, as his uh, as his job title implies but um so we went off to uh, <laughs> to go flying at this thing sat on the bench seat you can hardly see anything in the front um came down had a sandwich and then um off we went and um he said right well you know who's going first I went, yeah, all right, I'll go first. So um... no, no, I said donkeys. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh, so I you, wanted to so go you... first, but he wouldn't let me because I didn't have enough. Um... Yeah, he didn't have five hundred hours. In your I didn't have five hundred hours single engine piston in order for the insurance to be valid. Wow. Yeah. So oh, so you didn't I... go up together then? No, we we went. I just never forget. Dunk went first, and I just clogged him. He started this Pfizer Storch, and he kind of gave me this look as he taxied out, and it was his eyes. <laughs> Eyes were on stalks, and we watched him get airborne. And, and as, uh, we were in hysterics, weren't we, Parky? Yeah, I mean, he could have died, but we were in hysterics. <laughs> and it was it was just so random. The whole thing was so random. I, I remember... Just, we'd only gone for a look round the place, hadn't we? Yeah, and then we ended up flying solo in his, this mate's plane. It was just brilliant. But the, uh, the, the, do you remember the speedo, Dunk? The airspeed indicator was... In kilometres uh, an hour. It was kilometres an hour, and it was out of a... I guess for cost, it was out of a, uh, I think it was an ME109. So the, the speedometer, you know, went up to about 500 or 600 kilometers an hour. But <laughs> this Pfizer Storch... The centimeter. Yeah, the Pfizer Storch would only do about 80. So yeah. it was kind of like all off the bottom. And <laughs> You landed at 30, didn't you? Yeah, it was... You landed was, at 30. It would land in, in just, well, what, about 5 or 10 meters? It was it just sort of wasn't it? Extraordinary aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching from the outside, and the reason it was called a stalk JB is because you know it had these big, long undercarriage legs that would hugely cushion the landing. Um, And I remember seeing Dunk come into land, you know, and uh, I thought, always screwed that. That's a high rate of descent, and it just went and settled on these things, and he stopped in about three feet. It was amazing. It was a belter, as I remember, God. It it was a belter. (laughs) <laughs> Incredible! I had to give Goddess ten quid. I lost my bet. <laughs> so, um, g- just just going back to Winkle Brown and um, and his books, and particularly flying the ger- flying the German aircraft. What was his general impression of them? He, uh, it, I think, he describes it as they were they were extraordinarily advanced in terms of their design and as a concept. They almost took the aeronautical rule book and threw it out the window so in other words they would they would just go for well let's put the jet engine on the back of it let's let's put a jet or an engine and a fuselage separate you know like the Blumenboss yes and they they were just yeah and and they did they had a flying wing they had you know the the comet that god has mentioned was a was a single wing aircraft it had no no tailplane which was extraordinarily advanced for its time you know to to get that thing to work and they they were they had a uh, it was called, I think, the the arrow. It had a pusher and a puller propeller. And oh, this yeah. thing you know, went, about, went about 500 knots at low level. It was, you know, it, they were just so advanced technologically. And, and, you know, actually they had, by, you know, 1944, that the metal was rubbish. So actually the engines would explode after about 50 hours. And, uh, you know, they, they were, some of them were almost made of wood because they were r- running out of metal. But as designs, they were extraordinary. And I, I think he rated the... The Messerschmitt 262 was, you know, the finest combat aircraft he ever flew. You know, really? if that thing had been produced in the numbers that they would have liked, you know, it it would have made a big difference, you know, to the yeah. Uh, yeah. To the, the, the invasion. But, uh, yeah, he, he, he absolutely rated the German aircraft. Because, I, you know, I, 
I, um, I've got to say from um, from a guy who knows very little about aircraft. If you look at some of the Ger- some of the German things, like the, um, the like the Fokker Wolf one one ninety with the spiral oh, that's propeller. My oh, it look it looks so sinister and powerful. I'd love to fly that aeroplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, are there many still flying? Yeah, uh, not not three many. Or four, no, not maybe many. five, something like that, isn't it? Are they, are they all in the states? I'm guessing they're in the states in private collections. I'm not sure. Uh, one in Germany, I think. Yeah, one in yeah. Germany, I think. And then they did produce a sort of second batch, didn't they, of uh, of Fokker Wolves um, that uh, that were you know back in the sort of 90s, a sort of a redesign with with more modern engines. And there's a couple of those kicking around in Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's not one in in, in English hands over here, no. I no, don't think so. No, don't think so. Oh, no. But clearly, if anyone's listening who has got one, who's going to allow us to fly it, like that stork story, you know, we can all land them fine. Well, and, uh, just yeah. uh, just let us know. Yeah, well, I mean, called go first. <laughs> I don't mind. I'll go first. I mean, again, on a on a massive tangent, have you have you boys seen the gentleman who lives in South Africa? I think he's in Cape Town, and he owns a buccaneer. Uh, yeah, Thunder City. That's the yeah. one. Yeah. Now, now that looks no, we like... met the guy that owns that actually. Um, uh, a few years back, but I think they stopped flying. I think they had a really uh, a, 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 a very sad, tragic accident with mm. a lightning, uh, where they had a hydraulic leak and the guy couldn't get out. So I, I don't, I, I don't know. I think the aeroplanes may still fly, but they don't take them as passengers anymore. I don't think. Oh, these take passengers. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I don't think I'd be taking passengers in ex-military aircraft. Uh, no, in fact, but. Um, yeah, it's it still sounds like a pretty fun, fun fun place to visit. Right, well, gents, I think we're well over time now, anyway. So uh, it's probably fair uh, for well to give Dunk the last word on all this. Where can we find your interviews, Dunk? Because there is more than one, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There's loads of them, and we've just so as part of RAF 100, um, releasing them through uh, through the RAF. Um, so what we'll do is we'll put. I've released the first one with was with uh, George Johnny Johnson, um, the legendary uh, Dambuster, and it's uh, it's a, a really good interview with him as well. Um, and so that's out there at the moment. So we'll put the the link to that on Twitter. Um, the next one I've done is with a um, a Spitfire Hurricane and Typhoon pilot called Frank Blinkhorn, and again he's such a character. Sadly, um, he uh, went to the big crew room in the sky in 2016. But uh, the interview, and, and, and he's he's a great, great character. So uh, that should be coming out in the in the next few days. And given we've uh, we've listened uh, to the, the you know um, Eric uh, this evening, uh, what I'll do is I'll I'll do that one uh, as the next one. I'll put that into interview out next. Um, and what we'll do, I, I think, God, is if we can put a we'll put a link to them on the on the Twitter feed. Yeah, we'll put a link on the Twitter feed as well, and um, we'll see how popular this has been. And we'll maybe aim to do a, uh, you know, sort of ten-minute teaser in a chat um, of, of a lot of these interviews uh, in the future. Excellent. Right. Well, is this is that time of the podcast where Paul Godfrey turns into Paul Goddimbleby? We're going to have some <laughs> question time. <laughs> Great link. That is good. Um, have you got some questions? Come on. Ones. Yeah. So uh, I did tweet out, um, I was quite naughty, I did it whilst we were talking, um, to uh, to get some questions. Um, here's a good one from Dad Goggles. Is that your dad again, Doug? Yes. Yeah. Um, at, da- 
at Dag Goggles, and it says, with the announcement that Top Gun 2 uh, is coming out, what are your favourite flying slash war films, and do you watch them pointing out errors? Uh, <laughs> That's a great at, question. In, interestingly, I was out at... Um, so we had a bunch of meetings last week, and it happened to be hosted at the US uh, Naval Academy at Annapolis in Maryland. And that we were there on the day that Tom Cruise retweeted or tweeted the picture of him starting uh, filming again with old Maverick stood there this time in front of uh, an F-18. Yeah. So it was all now, very before, exciting. Before we get into that, okay, I do have a problem. I have, I have a, a bit of a big <laughs> problem here. When Top Gun first came out, there is no choice about it. The F-14 is one of the sexiest aircraft ever made. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any, any debate about that. The F-18 is kind of dull. Oh, that's contentious. It um, is kind of dull. just lost us about Lonely. three listeners. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe less. Maybe we actually rounded up there. Yeah, or maybe we've gone up. If only they'd done it with F-16s, Goddard. I know. Well, they did with Iron Eagle. All right, so let's talk movie. <laughs> I, in fact, I saw uh, <laughs> there was a, a really good tweet Um uh, from a lady I follow, uh, Lydia Jane, that was it, who put out a tweet. She retweeted Tom Cruise's picture. It said, I feel the need. And she put dot, 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 the need for a wee. Because <laughs> <laughs> Maverick's a little bit older gentleman these days. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you for extra- Thank you for explaining the joke. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I... I was a teenager at the time, so Top Gun, I flipping loved. I remember sitting there, it was a uh, a big double date. There was loads of us from my school and loads of us from the local girls' school all on a date, and I was telling everyone, I'll be doing that, and none of them believed me, and they still don't believe me. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you have never seen Iron Eagle, that is... Uh, if you guys must have... I know Parker, you would have seen it, but... <laughs> Most not. ...is a belter. An absolute belter. You know, if you can't play Queen whilst flying an F-16, you're just not living. <laughs> and, 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 it's and, a long and, time and, since and, I've seen that movie. In terms of putting uh, out mistakes, there are about 28,000 million in that one. Um, so it's <laughs> not number. worth it. Hang on. Yeah. So it's, it's the same Top Gun. Do you remember the circular radars in the back of the F-14? Yeah, yeah. The, the circular radars in the back of the F-14? What, just... Yeah, when you see the radar screen, it's doing a full 360-degree screen. Ah, <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> yes, of course. Which uh, it kind of didn't So uh, the F-14. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I guess That's the guy with the most experience here is obviously Parky. Parky, have, have, have you ever gone fully inverted on, um, on an intercept? <laughs> Not an F3. It's piled into the sea about one minute later. <laughs> Not intentionally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, mean, I was, I remember going to see Top Gun and I was on the F4 Phantom OCU at the time. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't think that film has aged particularly well. Oh, I disagree. Oh, oh yeah, no. I, like, I completely disagree. It's only because Parky can't play beach volleyball anymore. It's only because you, you, were, you were flying the predecessor to the F14. Can <laughs> you imagine him oiled up? Hasn't oh, aged like, well. It'd be like, it'd be like a be ginger like oiling your best shoes. <laughs> Hasn't aged well. Let, let's 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 just dismiss Parky from the rest of this conversation. Um, <laughs> don't have you got any glaring glaring? In fact, give us your favourite film and tell me any glaring errors you can find. With, with, we should do a whole episode on Top Gun. 
Yeah, we could. We'll have to get recurrent on it. I was actually telling you. No, that's a good one. We need to do we, that. We should yeah. actually watch it's Top Gun. Well, you guys yeah. can watch Top Gun and write down notes as you go along. I, yeah. that, that is a cracking podcast. I want, I, as someone who's in the sort of aircraft carrier F-35 program at the moment, I want to know why the air conditioning was never working on that ship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was very sweaty. They were sweaty. Yeah. Well, there was Can a lot I just of mig- say of, of films that there are, we, there was a, a screening of it at Headquarter and they did a, uh, a night open air screening of uh, the Battle of Britain. And boy, does that have some quotes in it that the dialogue in that movie is utterly brilliant. Yeah. You know, I, bring chicken to Nighthawk. And it's just it's endless. The, the lines that you can get out of that movie and it, I think it puts Top Gun to shame to be honest because it is aged so well it's, it yeah, is really, is it's really well filmed as well isn't it I mean unbelievable how if you ever see the making of the Battle of Britain which is uh, you know if you've got the, the Blu-ray or, or whatever it's on the extras um, that in itself with the you know the the um, oh what was it it was a um, little converted bomber they were using. It was a Mitchell B twenty six. B twenty six. That they were using as the camera ship, and just the fact that this retired group captain had gone around and essentially begged, borrowed, and stolen all of the um, even partially serviceable Spits and Hurricanes from um, front gates and various bits of hangars <laughs> and stuff like that to to try and put this um, this flying armada together, and then all of the Spanish stuff as well with the uh, with the Heinkels and the um, and the Messerschmitts. But I mean, they, the filming they, they is amazing. Get the, the characters that they pick, you know, from Robert Shaw, I guess he's Sailor Milan, to, you know, I'm not sure who Michael Caine was, but it, they are just brilliant. They're so plausible, all of them. And the banter and the wit in that film, uh, I think it does somehow sum up the RAF so well. They got it right. Have you seen it, JB? You must have done. Uh, I've seen bits of it. Uh, mostly, <gasps> oh mostly I've got to say, is extracts from YouTube. I have seen it a long, long time ago, though. Long time ago, but nowhere near near enough to give you a, give you any intelligible conversation on it. Right, right, now you're you're home, eating, so am I. We either stand down or blow up. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah, that's a Sunday afternoon sorted then, JB. Get Absolutely and watch is. Get uh, and watch it. What, so, are, what other flying movies are out there that have? Um, well, well, so obviously the Dambusters. You know, uh, yeah. sitting in the Royal Albert Hall watching that. Um, a couple three weeks ago whenever it was unbelievable and how good that that movie is because it's not just about the flight itself but it's about barnes wallace and the um and and how the bomb came together and and uh you know how he was working every waking hour in order to do so um and some fantastic flying in there as well there's Mm. only a couple of scenes where you can tell it's what we'd call cgi now you know where they painted on the old film oh yeah but but the real flying of real Lancasters at about Northfoot Six down uh, some of the the, uh, the dams areas and out over the sea, unbelievable, utterly brilliant. Sim- uh, uh, simpler time, simpler time. Exactly. Now, now here's one for you. One of my favourite war films. I don't think it's an aviation war film as such, and it's a boring, boring, boring answer. Uh, what do you guys think of Black Hawk Down? Ooh, oh, I, I thought that was brilliant. Belter. It is, isn't it? Flipping heck. Yeah, that's, that's tense, you know, isn't it? It's, as tension goes, it's up there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Man. Yeah, well, that's it's brilliant. It's brilliant film. And it, and it is, you know, based as, story, as much as these films yeah. are. They're based, it's based on a, on a true story. Any glaring yeah. errors for you, boys? Uh, it's 
difficult yeah, without having watched them recently. It's difficult to sort of uh, you know pick those. I, yeah, I saw up. it that not that long ago, but uh, you know, in terms of the way they they filmed it, um, you know, whether it is exactly true to that story in Mogadishu, I don't know, but um, it's uh, you know everything military looks about right in it. Yeah. Um, in fact, we were talking the other day. Have you have you seen the movie Lone Survivor? I'm sure. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. It, it, the one in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, it's we savage. Were talking about that in the states last week, and one of the guys who works with me said, "Oh, I was on that operation because he was uh, it was a Chinook pilot in Op Anaconda." Oh yes, um, and then the RPG goes in the back of it. Yeah, exactly, and the uh, you know with the SEAL team in the back. Um, so, uh, and that is a really good war film. I thought you know um, along the lines of, of Black Hawk Down. Yeah, that, that that's that's heavy watching. Very heavy watching. It's, it's up there with Blue Thunder, isn't it, Goddess? Oh, Blue Thunder, a converted gazelle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No idea what, what? those what those two things are. Uh, give me your next question, Goddess. Uh, here's a question. Uh, if you had to fly down the mall in a salute to Her Majesty... Um, <laughs> which, this is such you... a Goddess question. Did you write this question for yourself, Goddess? No, this is from Nick Blakeow, uh, man, at Man on the Fence. Um, if you had to fly down the mall in salute of Her Majesty, which would you rather be in, Spitfire or F-35? Oh. I think I know where the boys are going with this one, but go for it. The F-35 hasn't got the fuel, has it? <laughs> also, how would she see you? That is yeah, true. It's a no-brainer. No-brainer. Too easy. Too yeah. easy. No, but what? What? Do you remember when the, um, I forget, was it post-Gulf War One? And the U.S. Marine Corps landed a Harrier in Washington. They did an RVL onto the, uh, um, I don't know, what, it must have been that road that runs, uh, runs from the monument um, up past the, uh, the reflecting pool. But they RV, a rolling vertical landing, RVL this Harrier there. Now, if you could do that in an F-35 down the mall, that would be brilliant. Yeah, that's fair. That would win. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. That is yeah, pretty well cool. Said, yeah. yeah I, uh, I or quite... we could land a Spitfire there. <laughs> yeah. can we do it in a spitfire instead okay. <laughs> I, I always think that you definitely get a spitfire into the mouth definitely definitely would I always think that one of the one of the best spends of military money ever was uh, developing the B2 just so it could fly over NFL games <laughs> I mean that is its primary mission I, I think well, the, the, uh, when I was on the squadron in the States, actually, the, uh, um, they asked us to do a fly past at the, uh, the Daytona 500. Did they? Uh, yeah, and um, I didn't go that weekend because there were tons of the guys who were massive NASCAR fans. And uh, so they did this finger four uh, over the top of the, uh, of the crowd, you know, whatever it was, 200,000 people in there cheering for him, uh, for the guy who was, who was the other squadron guy who was on the ground. And when the, um, when the race had finished, uh, the guys went up and stood on a podium and they got this standing ovation from these hundreds of thousands of people and then got carried off on people's shoulders and oh. actually ended up on the front of NASCAR magazine uh, on, uh, you know, there's, uh, I think it was Dale Earnhardt Jr. who's a famous... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I know, it could have been Dale Earnhardt, actually. Didn't Dale uh, Earnhardt Jr. Killed. die recently in a crash? Uh, Dale Earnhardt died. He broke his neck in a, in a NASCAR race. Yes. Um, I don't know about the... Don't know about Junior, but hmm. the, the picture on the front of this national NASCAR magazine is, you know, the the four pilots that had flown this with Dale Earnhardt on their on their shoulders, flipping brilliant. Wow, that that is that that is pretty cool. Do you know what I think the coolest fly past is? And I'll I'll give you a clue. See see if anyone gets it. I think Goddard's might involved a seven four seven. 
Oh, was that the South African? Um, was it with a, World Cup was it with a space shuttle on top? No, Gordon's is exactly right. It was the South African World Cup final, just post apartheid. Yeah, no, when was that? Ninety-five, JB. Ninety. Oh, I want to say ninety-five or ninety-seven. I should know that. That that should be my special subject. But yeah, it's around. It's around that time, and it's seriously yeah, if you cool. See the video of it because the boys who were flying it definitely went low over the top of this stadium. Yeah, yeah, really low. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Seven four seven. Um, all right. One final question then. Uh, who's this? Uh, this is Mark at Mark. GSX slash R. Oh, must be a uh, must be a voter bike uh, rider. Which Skype account <laughs> is Parky using this time? Smiley face. <laughs> well, I mean, he's at his parents, so it, it, it could be any. No, yeah, he's so he's moved to his old bedroom, so he's on a different one. <laughs> it's good reception on my bunk bed. We've had to, we've had to turn the video off. He is. He's currently in his uh, PE kit, about to go out and practice some beach volleyball in the garden. Oh my god! Talking about not not aged well, hey? It's like varnishing an old teak table. (laughs) I like like polishing a leather shoe. (laughs) Polishing a what? Your leather shoe. Oh yeah, sorry. I was thinking of another phrase. Um, (laughs) Right, gents. I think this podcast is. We've literally squeezed as much life out of one podcast as any podcast has ever squeezed out of anything. So this is going to last. This is going to last seventeen commutes for people. Seventy minimum, minimum. Uh, Unless you're flying in uh, an F thirty five across the Atlantic, in which case you can listen to it three or four times. Uh, So uh, please follow us on social media. Our social media is what Godders at Pilot Episodes, Uh, and one day we'll have the Facebook page, right? Isn't it at Payload Episode Pod? Oh, yeah, that. <laughs> one, job. <laughs> one job. One pilot... job. You're quite sharp tonight, Dunk. He is. Sorry. Well, it's all, it's all about the detail. At oh, we... Pilot Episode Pod. That's yep. correct. Uh, and Dunk, rem- uh, tell us where we can we, where we can get all, all your fine interviews, please. Uh, the interviews. Well, we'll put a link on Twitter, but um, you go to the uh, RAF 100 um, Facebook page uh, and you'll find them on there if you type in Johnny Johnson. Excellent. I can't recommend them highly enough. And last last but not least, Parky, remind me of the books so people can go and read these books. Yeah, so Eric Winkle's Brown is uh, Wings on My Sleeve. And then there's uh, there's another load, which is Wings of the Luftwaffe. I think one's of Wings of the Weird and Wonderful Aircraft that he's flown. But uh, yeah, belting read. Fantastic. Right. So from me, Parky, Dunk, Han, me, Parky, Dunk and Godders, uh, we'll see you in, what, two weeks' time? Yeah, look forward to it. Fantastic. See you soon. Bye-bye. See you, JB. Bye. See you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.